Romans 7:13 through 25. This is God's word. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do that when I want to do what the when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the will of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. You can uh, keep that passage handy. Uh, we'll be looking at it here for the next several minutes. We're um, in the midst of a series where we're working through the book of Romans as well as uh, the book of Genesis uh, throughout this whole year and into next year. And we're taking each book a chunk at a time, and now we find ourselves in Romans. Uh, we're in uh, the, the chunk of Romans 5 through 8. And as we come to this section of the book of Romans, um, it's important to kind of step back for a moment. Up to this point, and in particularly beginning in, in, in chapter 6, Paul is beginning to work out the implications of the historical event of, of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, for sinners. And some of what he's already told us about Jesus is that he was the propitiation for sin. Another way to understand that word is he was the atoning sacrifice. He, Jesus' death is a payment for sin. Chapter 3, verse 25. He also says that Jesus redeems, that is, he sets free from the power of sin. In chapter 3, verse 24. And also that Jesus justifies, that he sets sinners free from the condemnation of God's law. And that was chapter 3, verse 21. And so therefore, what Paul tells us in chapter 6 and 7, 5, 6, and 7, first of all, in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, therefore, a Christian believer is someone who is justified by faith. That because of what Jesus has done, they are now right with God. They are no longer guilty. But then in chapter 6, he says that a Christian believer is someone who has died to sin. And what we saw, uh, what Paul means by that is that sin as a power, as a master, as a ruler in your life has been defeated. And then last week, we saw Paul tell us that 
a Christian believer is someone who has died to the law. He's, he's working out and applying how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our situation in any number of ways. He says, we've died to the law. That is, that the law now no longer is your judge. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, as Paul will tell us in chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ. And as we noticed, Paul really in chapter 7 is, is expounding the very last verse in, in, in chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, you are no longer under law, but you are now under grace. And what does that mean? And first thing we noticed from last week is that because of Jesus, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, we are released from a terrible marriage, a lifeless marriage, a marriage to the law that is nothing but um, discouraging and full of despair in order that we might belong to a new spouse. They might enter into a new marriage, into a relationship with Jesus, which is full of life and hope and new possibilities and power through faith in him to become what we could never be on our own. And the other thing we noticed from last week was that there is a a dominant theme in chapter 7, and it's the law of God. We noticed that in the first 13 verses, more than 20 times the theme of law appears. And that theme of law continues into the second half of chapter 7. And so this whole chapter is attempting to answer a very important question. What is the role of God's law in the life of faith? What is the role of God's law in the life of faith? And verses 1 through 13 answer that question in one way, and 14 through 25 answer it in another way. And I want to show you uh, how it answers these two questions. For simplicity's sake, how we need to think about verses 1 through 13 is that it describes how the law of God, it reveals sin in order to prove that no one can be saved or be justified, rescued by obeying the law. It is a passage that describes a person who is coming into contact with the true meaning of God's law and the ugliness of their own heart, bringing them to an end, they're, they're an end to themselves and leaving them only one option, and that is to turn to Jesus. So you think about the first half of chapter 7 describing how does the law in God's hands and in his mercy bring, help bring a person to saving faith in Jesus. But as we're going to see from the second part, it raises another question. Is the law, all that the law of God is, is useful for, is it just a primary instrument to bring a person to faith? Or is there some purpose for God's law in the life of a believer who has come to faith? And that's the question that we're going to look at today that these verses answer. Another way to answer, ask the question is, if the law of God can't save a person, can the law of God change a person? 
That's what Paul is attempting to answer for us. And so I have two points for us this morning. The first point is this. I want to try to answer a question. Who is Paul talking about in verses 14 to 25? That's the first point. Second, I want to look at how does the law of God actually function in the life of a believer? Okay? So first, let's look at who is Paul actually talking about. And this is a much debated question among commentators, and, and I, I just want to say up front that I have been immensely helped by a pastor, theologian, actually was a professor of mine at one point, Sinclair Ferguson, on this point. Um, there have been many able commentators and scholars throughout the history of the church who have disagreed on who is this person that Paul is referring to in this section of Romans 7. In order to uh, cut through a lot of that, I think there are actually two observations that if you can see clearly, much of this passage will come into focus for you, okay? And the first observation is this, that in, in this section, verses 14 to 25, every single verb, except for one, and that's the verb uh, will, a future verb in verse 24, Every single verb in this section is in the present tense. Now, if you were to compare that to verses 1 through 13, verses 1 through 13 are dominated by past tense verbs, which is why I was saying earlier, verses 1 through 13 really discuss the role of God's law and God bringing a person to faith. Paul's describing his past experience. But in this section, all of the verbs are present tense. That's the first thing to notice. But the second thing to notice, every single pronoun is in the first person. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you were reading any other book or any other piece of literature where a section is dominated by the present tense and by the first person singular pronoun, who would you think it's talking about? I think we would immediately and intuitively think or it, it's talking about the person writing it. This is a first-person, first-hand description. And, and I think we're bound to draw two conclusions. That in this passage, this person, and here in this case, Paul, is speaking about himself. And second, that he is speaking about his present experience. Paul is speaking about himself and his present experience. And therefore, what I want you to hear in this section, Paul is giving us a portrait of the normal, ordinary Christian life. And he's using himself as that illustration. That he's giving us a picture of ordinary experience in the Christian life. However... What's really interesting, though, is Paul says a number of things in this passage that make you wonder and think, perhaps Paul is contradicting himself, and is he being inconsistent with what he's already said about what it means to be a Christian? Let me just point out a couple of, so you, you can feel the force of this, because it's, it's crucial to where Paul is going and what he wants you to learn. Look in verse 14. What does he say? He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Verse 18, he says, nothing good dwells in me. 
Verse 23, he says, I am captive to the law of sin. And then verse 24, he says, I am a wretched man. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? When he's already said, a Christian is someone who's died to sin. A Christian is someone who has died to the law. A Christian is someone who has been saved by free grace. See, what Paul is helping us to see here is he wants you to understand that in the normal, ordinary Christian experience, he has learned something. And it's crucial for living the life of faith. Look where he says here in verse 21. He says, I have, I've discovered something. I have found it to be a law. In this case, law is a principle, a general rule. That's always true. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He is giving us a comprehensive general rule or principle of the normal, ordinary experience of a Christian believer. So, what does he mean by that? He, be, he unpacks this further in verses 22 and 23. Just listen to what he says. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, that is, at the core of who he is, that, that, that the law of God is the most important thing to him. I delight in the law of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What's he talking about? What he's telling you here is that the normal, ordinary Christian life is a battle. It's a struggle. It's a war. It's full of internal conflict and wrestling When he wants to do good, evil lies close at hand. Now, what he's telling us here is this. When he says that you've died to sin, in chapter 6, verse 2, that is a fact, and that is true, because a believer is connected to Jesus and united to him. But what he has not said and is not saying, sin has not yet died in you. Paul is saying that you have died to sin, but sin has not yet died in you. And those are both true at the same time. Another way of thinking of it is like this. The power of sin because of Jesus has been broken. That's chapter 6. Sin no longer reigns in your life. But that does not mean that the presence of sin is utterly removed. It's so important to understand that. Because if you don't, you will feel like and think sin still runs your life. And it's crucial for us to understand the difference between the power of sin and the presence of sin. And if I could put it this way, Satan's number one goal in your life is to persuade you that the presence of sin really is the power of sin. And that is the biggest lie that you face, or one of the biggest lies that you face and must battle against as a follower of Jesus. 
Because Paul is telling us, you have died to sin, but sin has not yet died in you. So, what has led Paul to speak this way about himself? The answer to that question really is Paul's understanding of the ongoing purpose and relevance of God's law in the life of faith. So let's look at the second point here. What is the role of God's law in the life of a Christian believer? Well, let's start with how, law, how Paul talks about the law, his attitude. Notice what he says. This is actually from verse 12 from last week. He says, the law is holy, righteous, and good. In verse 14 of our passage this week, he says the law is spiritual. That is to say that it has a divine origin. Verse 16, the law is good. Verse 22, speaking here about his own attitude and delight, he says, I delight in the law in my inner being. In verse 25, he says, I serve the law of God. Now again, here is a description of the attitude of a Christian believer towards God's law. And so it's important for us to ask, if Paul has that kind of positive attitude, what does he actually think it can do in his life? What should you and I grow to look for and appreciate what the law can do in our lives? And in short, what Paul is telling us, and we we began to see this last week, the law exposes our sin. That is one of the most basic roles and purposes of God's law in the life of the believer. It exposes our sin. It penetrates into the nooks and crannies of our life. And what Paul is helping us to see is when the law of God does that work, it can feel like we are still sold under sin. It feels like he doesn't understand what he's doing in his own actions. It begins to expose this deep contradiction in his life. And it begins to make clear that there is this irreconcilable battle raging in his life. Listen to what he says in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18, halfway through, says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, though we've died to the law, we are far from perfect according to the requirements of the law. And therefore, Paul has this ongoing struggle when the law of God penetrates into places in his life, it exposes the shallowness of his obedience. It exposes that he really is not as mature or as holy as perhaps he thought. It exposes also the ugliness of our disobedience. And so the law of God in the life of the believer has a very powerful, penetrating, and even sometimes painful purpose. 
And it creates this dissonance. It brings out this internal contradiction to the point where sometimes you say, I don't, I don't understand what I'm doing. Let me give you an example. Um, if you're new this morning, um, welcome. And uh, <laughs> I would consider myself a fairly angry person. Um, I don't know if you've heard of pastors say that up front, but there you go. Uh, even this morning, I'll give you an example. I was taking a shower, and you ever have your shampoo, you starts to get to the bottom, and uh, if you tip it up, upside down, it drains to the top, and so it comes out faster. Well, this particular bottle was not tipped the way I want it tipped, and I couldn't get the shampoo out, and I was angry over the shampoo. Uh, I don't understand that. That just seems irrational. Um, Or take my children. I get really angry at them. And I know it's wrong. I know that it hurts them. I know that it doesn't produce anything good at all. And yet I keep doing that. I don't understand that. I don't want to do that. I know it's not right, and yet I don't have the ability to not do it. Now, that's just an example. I want you to think about that. See, Paul is telling you something here that is incredibly practical. It's in the Bible. It's part of living the life of faith. This is living by faith in the trenches. I don't want you to be afraid of it. You know, I have some discomfort sharing that with you. It's shameful to admit I'm angry as a person in general. And yet, I know it's wrong. I don't want to do that. But if we're ever going to grow together and enjoy the good news of the gospel, you need to be okay saying, you know, I'm an adulterer. You know, I'm, I'm greedy. You know, I, I wish that person dead. You know, I don't want to worship God. I'd rather worship my dream for my life. And I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. Because at the very same time, I don't want to do that, and yet I do want to do that. See, Paul is helping you to understand if the law of God... It's what enables you to see that. And you have to see it. The law of God exposes our sin. It exposes our inability. It brings to the surface this irreconcilable battle. But then we need to understand, not only that's what the law does do, but what can't it do? See, the law shines on the pollution of my heart, but it cannot remove that pollution. The law is powerless to produce what it commands. Put it this way. If we want to take a a, a tip from Jesus, Jesus summarizes the entirety of God's law as this, to love God and to love your neighbor. That's true and that is good and holy and righteous, but the law of God cannot produce in your life what it commands of you. 
And why is that? Paul tells us it's not the law that's the problem. The problem is God's law is weakened by our flesh, by the sin that dwells in us. Something must overcome that weakness. All of this is what brings Paul to say in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his answer is Jesus. It is only Jesus Christ who can deliver us from this body of death, from this internal angst, from this internal um, split personality, as it were, at times. And what, what's important to notice here, too, is, you know how I said chapter 7 is really dominated by this theme of the law. You know what comes in chapter 8? We've only heard about the Holy Spirit once in chapter 7. But when we get to chapter 8, upwards of, I think, 15 times in the first 17 verses, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at this next week, next couple weeks, is how Jesus Christ deals with this problem that the law of God is weakened by our flesh. So, what this means is we got to recognize there is a both and in the life of faith. Just look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, Sin dwells within me. But then later on in in, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Christ dwells in me. Those are true at the same time for the believer. But what you also need to understand when Paul says, sin dwells in me, and then he says, Christ dwells in me, what he also says about Christ dwelling in you is that Jesus is the hope of glory. The hope of glory, the end of this internal dissonance and confusion, bewilderment, is in Jesus. He is your hope of glory. If I could put it this way, the law of God is not your hope of glory. Jesus Christ is your hope of glory. These two things are true at the very same time. And what this means for the believer, when Paul says that Christ dwells in you, even as sin dwells in you, what he's saying is you are now free from sin, from the power of sin, in order that you might struggle against it and prevail. Paul is here giving us a portrait of, of the Christian life. He's not saying that he walks around the first century world saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Okay, this is not um, an exercise in perpetual self-loathing and self-hatred. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying, when the word of God penetrates into your life, or perhaps by certain failures and weaknesses in your life or circumstances in your life and God's law penetrates and it brings to the surface these deep contradictions. 
Those are those times in our lives when it is entirely appropriate to be reminded and to cry out, wretched man that that I am, or wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? Now, I want to land or finish by uh, borrowing uh, three sort of application points that um, I got from Sinclair Ferguson that I think we've got to end on these. The first one is this. Just as the law can't justify the sinner, the law cannot sanctify the saint. This is so important for you to understand. And this is true whether you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian or not. Just as the law of God cannot make you righteous before God and free you from the guilt of our sin, the law of God cannot make you holy. It cannot take out the pollution in your heart. It cannot sanctify you. And therefore, we should never look to the law of God to change us. Another way to put it is, we need to look to the one who justified us to sanctify us. Second, if you want a Christian life in which you don't have a consciousness of your own deep sinfulness, you can forget about it. There is no such thing, there is no such Christian life that does not have as a part of its regular diet what Paul describes in this passage. There just isn't a way out of that. The scriptures do not allow you to conceive of a Christian life that is utterly free from the struggle and the bewilderment that from time to time Paul describes in this passage. And lastly, though, I do want to land and end here. I want you to hear this loud and clear. The gospel never leaves you in that wretched cry of verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As if that question could not be answered. God's law in the life of the believer will utterly cut you down. It will bring you to a point of utter humility and sense of brokenness and weakness and powerlessness. But the good news of the gospel never leaves you there. It always leads to thank God. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What that means is this. No matter what the law of God reveals in your life, no matter what you discover, no matter how discouraged or despairing or bewildered you become, it is not more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. He has come to be wed to you. He has come to be the faithful spouse to you who loves you, will never leave you, no matter what he discovers about you, no matter how unfaithful you are to him. He will always be faithful to you and he is your hope of glory. 
That's the good news here. Think of it like this. The law of God is Jesus wanting to be a part of your life in the deepest, most intimate ways in order in the hands of his spirit that he pours out into the lives of his people that he might work in you, that you might become that person, that man or woman or child you could never become on your own. Do you see the law of God is not your enemy It is a faithful, loving, self-sacrificing spouse taking time and energy to make you truly who God intends you to be. And he has the power to do it. And what should we do? We should relish that relationship. We should turn to him. We should ask him for help. We should delight in him. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for this passage. We ask that, as hard as it can be to understand and as complicated, we ask that your Spirit would cut through that in such a way that um, we would understand it. And even more than that, not just understand it, but that we would see the good news of Jesus, the hope of the gospel, the hope of glory, shining through, even as we are confronted with our own internal contradictions and our own inabilities and our own bewilderment, the shallowness of our own efforts to to obey in our own strength, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus and that we would delight in him and rejoice in him and rest in him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.